Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And welcome to another episode of Apocryphal Australia. But before we get into our vignettes, stories and the results of our research, let's have a look at the mailbag, Stephen. Bulging again? Bulging again, absolutely chock-a-block. Let me dive into the mailbag first, Stephen, because it is absolutely groaning. I'd like to mention a number of emails from various excited folks who want to improve our physical details, our love lives, and generally everything about us. Loads of these, thanks. But if we were improved much more, we'd actually be dangerous. So put them aside. I also have a plaintive email from Ismen Torkendale of Burley Burley, Queensland, who'd like to become a part of the Apocryphal Australia on-air team, but only if he can remain silent. Now, a more pointless offer I haven't come across lately, but I'm sure someone out there will do their best to beat it. And rolling down the list here, I've got Romana Fescue of Bernie Bernie, Tasmania. She thinks we should wear ties when recording our podcast and is disappointed that we don't. Look, sorry, Romana, but if you listen carefully to episodes two, three and five, you should be able to hear that we actually did wear ties for the duration of those outstanding listening experiences. While in episode seven, we wore cravats. Now, perhaps a trip to the audiologist is in order, Romana, and do try to get one that knows a thing or two about men's neckwear. And finally, just to wrap up for my part, Stephen, we've had a suggestion from an LG trustee to click here to verify our banking details. Now, since this came in a handwritten physical letter, complete with a wax seal, I'm not sure it had the desired effect that LG was after, but nice try. (laughs) Stephen, what have you got? I have got a lot of emails. There's just one I want to focus on. I've had a couple of queries along these lines, but I just want to focus on this one. I've had an email from, from Mr Eddie Bland from Wanda in Queensland. I'm wondering if we'd ever researched a subject and then rejected it. Now, I can recall this happening a few times. I know I've looked into promising subjects only to find not so much apocryphal as, as downright fake. And I remember early in the piece, I was looking into Mr. Roy Perlman, who claimed the first powered heavier-than-air flight well before the Wright brothers. I was deep into the research, and it looked really, really promising. I remember talking to you about it, Michael, at some stage. Yeah, I remember. Anyway, the whole story ended up, but it all hinged on some alleged footage that Perlman had made of the flight. If I could find that, I could wrap up the whole story. So it was, it was all looking good at this stage. Anyway, long story short, I found it. Misfiled in the Department of Defence storage. I watched the film, and I re-watched the film, I slowed it down, and it all seemed legitimate. This was stunning stuff. Probably beyond our little podcast, really. It was probably more for major newspaper material. Then I noticed something. The film showed Perlman's flyer taking off from a flat surface. The the film only lasted a few seconds. But then I noticed a bird in the background flying just behind the aircraft. 
and it was flying straight down. Then I noticed that the words Watson's Wheat were written on the ground the flyer took off from, and the writing was obviously the wrong way up. So what Perlman had done was mount a camera on its side on a wheat silo, then had his flyer drop from an adjacent wheat silo, the side-mounted camera making, making it seem like it was taking off from the ground when, in fact, the aircraft was just plummeting from the silo. So that just goes to show that with your research, you just have to be a little bit careful and go in a bit deeper than perhaps other people would. We tend to trust our correspondents, Stephen, but when they do something like this, it really shakes your faith in humanity. Oh, well, what can you do? (laughs) Exactly. We just persevere. Before we get into our stories, our vignettes, our results of our research, I've got a couple of technical matters here, Stephen, because Mm -hmm. I've uh, been forgetting to use our vast array of sound effects. Oh, yes. Yeah, look, now, I want to run through them just now so you can be alert and signal for opportunities when we can drop these in to enhance the auditory experience of our listeners. Right, I've got pen in hand, I'm making notes. Okay, now, this is our first one. (laughs) Now, I suppose that's for when we make one of our customary witticisms and our japes and our jokes that uh, could come in handy. For for a serious show like us, though, it's probably not going to get a lot of use, but anyway. Yeah, keep it in the background. Uh, How about this one? I like that one. Yeah, look, we have used that one before, and uh, we wouldn't want to overload the episode, but there are plenty of applause-worthy moments, I'm sure. Now, here comes one we have used. (laughs) One of your favourites, I know. It is. And look, I must say, occasionally we do have some characters who bob up in our vignettes who really deserve a little bit of sad trombone, but that's part of the joy of the whole business. And how about this one? (laughs) (laughs) Again, for the appropriate witticism or uh, perhaps tired old bit of banter. Yeah, a rim shot. Away we go. You can't beat a, a, a good boomtish. Yeah, okay. And I've got this one. Now, I could imagine, and I'm looking at what's coming up in the future, I think I've got a few characters if it's a few events that this could be extremely useful for. Have a listen to this one. Ooh. Yeah, a little bit of uh, anticipation, a little bit of scariness going on there. Uh, creates suspense. And I can see that the professionals use this sort of thing and then we're, we're working our way towards it. And, of course, for those moments that perhaps might fall a little bit flat. Uh, that'll never get a run. True, true, true. Now, occasionally we're looking in the future to have a special guest or two and I'll just keep that one up my sleeve. And how about this one? I'm not sure how we'd fit this one in, but it is nice. Uh, well, very occasionally we have a nice happy ending. Oh, that's one place we could put it, I suppose. That's true. That's true. That uh, some figure who's really into the spiritual side of things, maybe. And I think this one could be perfect. Have a listen. <laughs> Ah, look, I can see that we'll, we'll have somebody, uh, an event or a person from the bus, and we will string it out and we'll pause significantly. You signal to me, Stephen, and I hit this one and then you go for the big reveal. So we'll have to come up, I'll have to make little signs and I'll have to sort of hold it up and sort of say, you know, 
dramatic effect now. Excellent. The dun, dun, dun. That is a classic from cinema's golden age, I think. And I have handcrafted one here, Stephen, thinking about the idea of catchphrases, as one of our correspondents brought up recently. And how about this one? Could drop it in appropriately. That's apocryphal. That's apocryphal. (laughs) We'll be using that six times per episode. Well, yeah, we do roll out things that are apocryphal. But... I'm not thinking that our listeners need some sort of audible signpost to let them know that what they've heard is just apocryphal. It's obvious from the way we present it. That's right. That's right. All right. We'll leave that aside, Stephen, and let's dive into our first story for today. You've got one ready for us? Yes, indeed. I've got what have I got today? I've got a I think I've got a bit of a mixed bag. I've got a place, a person and an event. So I think I'll start off with the place. Looking forward to it. This is all about corrugated iron hinge. We've all heard of Stonehenge and all various wood hinges. Well, this is corrugated iron hinge. Approaching the outer boundaries of the Mallee in Victoria, a traveller is often assailed by the feeling that the land is watching. There's an eerie quality to the light. The silence is too quiet. It's only as the weary traveller climbs up over Gungiup Rise that the reason for all this becomes apparent. Corrugated Iron Hinge stands some six feet tall. It rises out of the Knacker Plain like a set of corrugated iron things arising out of a plain. No one knows who built the strange configuration of rectangular boxes, nor what purpose it was supposed to serve. The locals say it's always been there, stark, menacing, brooding. Others say it was built during the 50s. Not so stark, not all that menacing, and not so much brooding as a bit pongy. Whatever the truth of the matter, corrugated iron hinge holds a strange hold over the inhabitants of the region and the many tourists who trek for kilometres simply to gaze at the structure and wonder. The outer ring of the hinge has suffered the effects of time and severe Mallee willy-willies. Many of these outer boxes are fallen or tilted slightly. The inner ring, or inner ring, has fared slightly better and one can see the exactitude with which the builders of the buildings built. Many speculate that the structure forms some sort of primitive calendar. Others claim it's a type of computing device, the science of which has been lost to us. Still others see the site as a sign left from visitors from another star. Once the structure can be decoded, the visitors will return to the site, not unlike a sort of timeshare holiday resort in many ways. Similar sites abound in this part of the Mallee. Two kilometres from the Iron Hinge is Four Batu Hinge a wooden hinge that many see as a working plan or model for the larger and more ambitious iron hinge. Cynics point to what they see as obvious signs of the structure's purpose, claiming that the boxes are no more than the remains of workmen's dunnies used in the construction of the Mallee Highway. Whilst this is an attractive theory, it fails to explain the haunting, timeless quality of the location, although it does go a long way to explain the smell. Whatever the truth of the matter... Corrugated Iron Henge remains one of the more enigmatic places in this wide brown with lots of green bits land of ours. Mm, mysterious, Stephen. Yes, mysterious and um, evocative of a, times past. Yep, good lots, word for lots it. Lots of myths abound. It's, it's a great place. And you raise the interesting issue, you raise the interesting feature of those willy-willies. I mean, you don't want to get caught and hit on the head by a willy-willy. Oh, goodness, no. Oh. All right, and, Stephen, you deserve 
<laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. I should have gone for one of those spooky ones. During, oh, during yeah, that. we could have done that one. Oh, I might be able to drop that in in post-production. What have you got for us today, Michael? Yeah, I'm going to start with a figure from the past, one of our classic sort of stories, Stephen, and this is Archibald Sistoon. 1810 to 1888. Archibald Sistoon was one of Australia's greatest all-round athletes and his prowess was discovered when he began to walk at only two months of age. At five months old, he was able to pin his mother two falls out of three and by his first birthday he showed that he could bowl a wicked in-swinger, either left or right-handed. Raised in Goulburn, New South Wales, he was recognised for his athletic feats throughout country New South Wales. In his teens, he completed astounding feats of speed, strength and endurance. In 1825, he and his horse Big Boy cleared a fence eight feet high. Then the young Archibald Sistoon repeated the feat, swapping places with the horse and carrying it while leaping over the barrier. In 1826, he wheeled a wheelbarrow full of bricks for 24 hours non-stop, ending up 100 miles from Goulburn. He built a neat one-room cottage from the bricks before running home backwards all the way, arriving only 10 hours later. Archibald Sistoon eschewed team sports, preferring to test his solo metal. Therefore, he excelled in wood chopping, pig wrestling, freeform ice sculpture and life modelling while also setting a number of records on the billiards table, where his Thunderbolt cannon was renowned for the force with which it struck the white, leaving many spectators temporarily deafened. He also dazzled all and sundry with his sheaf, caber and bullock tossing. By the age of 20, Archibald Sistoon was tired of conventional sporting exploits like these, and he turned his hand to increasingly bizarre tests of his ability – In 1831, he ran from Goulburn to Sydney and back, dressed as Benvolio from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. In 1832, he carried a pig on his back while he completed 10,000 one-handed push-ups in a single day in a costume from Twelfth Night, complete with cross-guarded yellow stockings. In 1833, he towed a steam locomotive by its teeth while painting a portrait of the governor and dressed as a revisionist version of Polonius from Hamlet. In 1834, he had himself wrapped in chains while he rolled from Gosford to Newcastle with a bowl of jelly on his head. He composed a sonata along the way and the bowl of jelly remained unspilled during the entire journey, even though his puck costume from A Midsummer Night's Dream became frayed at the elbows. In 1836, in somewhat of a letdown to the legion of followers he'd gathered, he hopped from Port Kembla to Wollongong while whistling Bach's Brandenburg Concerto in character as Richard III. After more increasingly outlandish efforts, Archibald Sistoon joined the circus as a combination strongman and lion tamer, but was dismissed after wrestling two lions and a tiger in a display that left all three big cats traumatised, perhaps because of his outrageous Scottish accent and insistence on asking where the weird sisters were. Ashamed and guilty, Archibald Sistoon stowed away on a ship bound for New Zealand but died in a freak accident while drunk where he slipped and impaled himself on a pineapple he had in his back pocket. His last words, Eat two fruit, eh? What what is it with so many tragic losses with these people? Is is it just because they're natural risk takers or...? I think it could be. And because they reach for the heights, and those heights are so high that 
when they miss, they fall a long, long way. Stephen, tell us all about a significant figure you've uncovered. We're going to have a look at Timothy Bleary, born 1939 um, in Melbourne. He became Australia's, Australia's first, I suppose, self-styled counterculture guru. Mm. He was born to Bob and Thel Bleary in suburban Melbourne. Early acquaintances described him as variously as boring, mundane, run-of-the-mill, a bit of a plodder and dull. All this was to remain the same, however, until the young Timothy, or Tim, as he liked to be called, became entangled in the tea set of post-war Melbourne. Young rebellious people would sit around in low dives and town halls, drinking tea and eating cakes until the early hours of the afternoon. Timothy was entranced by this renegade lifestyle and soon became a regular tea drinker, often consuming up to three three cups of the beverage at one sitting. These lost years formed the basis of a book Timothy was to write, which would define the character of his times. Tune out, drop in, have a cuppa, would you like a lamington, shocked the establishment of the time and earned Timothy a reputation as something of a radical. In this groundbreaking work, he described how he was first introduced to hard tea, like Darjeeling. He went on to describe his first trip. This took place when someone spiked his Earl Grey and he was forced to retire to his bed for two days. He recalled that as he lay there, experiencing the effects of uncut Russian caravan coursing through his bloodstream, he felt compelled to turn to one side. It was then, Timothy relates, that he underwent his first out-of-body experience. He said he saw quite clearly his own self looking at his own body lying prone on the bed. This episode last for some considerable time until a friend came in to see how he was and accidentally moved the mirror. After recovering from his bad trip, Bleary went on to experiment with increasingly stronger leaves, such as lemon tea, commonly referred to as acid in tea head parlance, and lime, otherwise known as Moroccan black. Tiring of the small confines of suburban Melbourne, Bleary went on a sojourn overseas. He suddenly found himself something of a celebrity, became the doyen of countercultures everywhere. He's said to have inspired rock groups, the Moody Bruce wrote a song about him, and poets wherever he travelled. All the while, Bleary continued his unashamed substance abuse until finally his body could take no more. In 1974, he was admitted to hospital, suffering acute bladder failure. He now lives a quiet life back in his beloved Melbourne. He occasionally is wheeled out to make pronouncements on life in those wild, erratic days in the Woman's Weekly and other subversive magazines. And he admits to still doing the occasional pot. Now, Stephen, as you pointed out, we do have a number of figures who represent disasters and failures, but we also have a number of figures from the past who perhaps are sobering examples for people today. Everything in moderation. Now then, Michael, I understand you've got a very, very juicy-sounding one for us. Spill the goss. Oh, yeah. Now, lest we be accused of jumping on the true crime bandwagon, and, well, perhaps we are, I'm exploring a major criminal episode from the past, and that's the Snainton kidnapping of 1956. So everybody out there, we really need to hang on to your hats. Wowzers. 
The Snainton kidnapping of 1956 was one of the most sensational forgotten crimes in the mid-20th century. And due to public fervour surrounding the Melbourne Olympic Games, the full weight of public attention at the time never fell on this perplexing criminal act. The perpetrator of the Snainton kidnapping was Othello Langdon, a 43-year-old unemployed turkey wrangler. With a genius that comes from complete incompetence and eschewing any thought of starting small and building up a felonious CV gradually, he decided to embark on a criminal career by kidnapping an entire circus. It is unclear exactly how Othello Langdon managed to abduct Snainton Circus, but when it was three days late for an engagement in Shooter's Rest, Queensland, it was realised that something was afoot. Police and authorities scoured most of Queensland and northern New South Wales, but no trace was found of the popular performing troupe. A special task force, Operation Big Top, was formed, taking on board some of Queensland's finest police, law enforcement officials and tactical clowning experts. Thousands of posters, Have You Seen This Circus?, were distributed, and a reward of £1,000 and two tickets to see the bearded lady were posted. A week after the disappearance, the first ransom demand was sent to a major Brisbane newspaper, the Brisbane Tribune. At first, the demand for 1,000 billion million trillion billion billion pounds was not taken seriously. But when a second note arrived threatening violence to the abductee and doubling the ransom, the task force realised they were dealing with a master criminal. This despite the fact that Othello Langdon signed his own name to the ransom note and proudly added master criminal as an afterthought. Police inaction resulted in a third ransom demand arriving at the Brisbane Tribune office in as many days. In this, Langdon threatened to start sending bits of the abductee through the post as an indication of the seriousness of his intent. When no response was forthcoming due to the task force having their annual picnic, a large package arrived at the Brisbane Tribune. It contained a dazed and half-stifled acrobat, Waldo Benzini of the Flying Benzinis. The task force, puzzled by the turn of events, went on a two-day retreat. In that time, four more packages were delivered to the newspaper. These contained a clown, two performing dogs and the tattooed lady. Each was accompanied with a note, each more frenzied than the last. In the fourth, Langdon threatened to send enormous great chunks of his victim if his demands weren't met. Galvanised by this, the task force met and wrote a long progress report, several dissertations and an encomium. Within three days, all the missing members of the circus had been delivered to the newspaper, including both elephants. Othello Langdon was never arrested and never found and remains at large. Circuses throughout the world have been put on alert. Bloody hell, Michael, you've, you've only gone and uncovered a cold case. <laughs> right, we really should do one of those reconstruction, get it up on TV and just wait for all of the tips to roll in. <laughs> Absolutely. Well done. Stephen, your third story for today, I'm sure it's going to be a cracker. Yes, this is the, the final of the, the three, and this is all about the hard flood of 1948. This occurred in the Lumi district in New South Wales, which has seen its fair, fair share of natural and man-made disasters. For instance, there was the, the Great Fire of 57, the Frost of 58, and the Great Nude Bridge Affair of 64. 
These, however, pale into insignificance when compared to the hard flood of 48, especially the new bridge affair, and that was pretty pale to start with. It all started on the evening of the 24th of April. It had been a normal day in the small town of Whipple, the regional centre of the Lumi district. People were going about their normal day-to-day business, shopping, picking up the kids, having hot steamy affairs in cheap nasty hotel rooms and preparing for a relaxing evening. Clouds were beginning to bank up on the horizon, but that was okay. The place needed rain. Wheat prices had been down for a while and the new crops yet to be planted would need a decent rain to get the seed off to a good start. All in all, a normal Whipple day. But was it? Young Henty Maguire was playing in the old mill when he came upon what seemed to be a secret room. Well, you can't keep a secret door closed from a 13-year-old boy for long, especially a precocious little brat like Henty. He soon had the hinges off the door and was in there quicker than you can say, what's the little bastard going to do now? Meanwhile, over on the horizon, the clouds that had been banking made a huge withdrawal and began a deposit of rain that was to last some four hours. Worried looks began to replace smiles when the rain just kept coming and coming. However, back at the old mill, Henty Maguire's exploring had revealed something, something so ordinary that the young lad was soon to get bored out of his brain. The hidden room contained flour. This was not just plain old ordinary flour, but high quality stuff. But it was still just flour. There's no getting around that fact. I could jazz this up as much as I liked and it would still be just flour. There was an awful lot of it, though. The interesting thing about this stockpile of flour was that it concealed enough high explosives to blow the entire town into the middle of next week. No one ever did the physics on this one, but I'm assured that this was the case. Anyway, the clouds were still making allusions to financial dealings, and fortunately for young Henty, he decided that the flour was a bore and he left the old mill. Unfortunately, he left the door open. The rains came. The water poured through the doorway and into the secret room like a plot device into a narrative. The explosives got wet. These were special explosives. No, I didn't believe it either the first time I heard it, but bear with me. They were the sort that didn't like water. They went off. The flour went up. The rain kept coming down. The end result was that the town of Whipple was encased in soft pastry. Naturally, the clouds cleared quite quickly and a blazing hot sun baked the moist and flowery town. Thus was born the famous hard flood. People still talk about the flood with a mixture of awe and hunger. The truly sad fact is that the sugar factory right next door to the old mill had closed just the week before. Now, it would seem that this could have been somewhat of a baker's delight. Now then, Michael, I understand you've got a an entry from the world of natural history. That's right, Stephen, and this is a more contemporary story here, and it's the story of Penny Mallison, 1963 to 1997. Penny Mallison was born in Ramekin Hills, South Australia. Her mother was the noted woodcarver Roshanna Mallison, and her father was Benjamin Skip Mallison, the only survivor of the RAS undeflatable rigid airship disaster. She was distantly related to Ellie Mansible, the pioneer aviator who discovered the lost continent of Atlantis and then lost it again. Penny Mallison's work in the area of species conservation has been much neglected. 
her tireless efforts on behalf of some of our most overlooked flora and fauna make her deserving of far greater recognition. Penny Mallison left a highly paid job in the millinery trade in 1988 to work in the area of environmentalism and, in particular, endangered species. After some success in organising letter campaigns to save whales, pandas and orangutans, she suddenly was taken with the huge numbers of species that never got any press. She found posters of whales, pandas and baby seals by the truckloads, but had difficulty in finding anyone who'd ever even heard of the lesser screwworm. After an argument at a wine and tabouli fundraiser, she left the mainstream environmentalist movement and started her own breakaway group, People for Unpopular Animals and Plants. As head and publicity officer of the PFUAP, as well as its only member, Penny Mallison dedicated herself to publicising the plight of creatures such as the eastern barred slug and the bloaterfish, and plants such as the incredibly boring brownwood, a small shrub so unremarkable that it had been discovered, forgotten and then discovered again some 42 times. While some of these species weren't strictly endangered or even threatened, Penny Mallison felt her efforts were a sort of pre-emptive strike against the possibility of them becoming extinct. A poster of the 10-centimetre-long gut leech with the tagline, How can we afford to lose creatures like this? And a calendar featuring such beauties as the giant festering mosquito, the mould weevil and the snaggle-toothed possum were milestones in the preservation of unpopular species. But these paled into insignificance against her 45 RPM recording of What's Christmas Without a Spotted Tapeworm? Penny Mallison's efforts rarely rated a mention in the mainstream press. Instead, she had to rely on direct action. She began a breeding program for the vomiting owl in the backyard of her home in the New South Wales town of Bathurst, and it became a shelter for all manner of ignored species. Soon, she was tending to the sick and injured of all sorts of slimy, prickly and inoffensive creatures. Or maybe offensive creatures. In an effort to boost the profile of the creatures most would call unappealing, Penny Mallison combined efforts with the late lamented Jenny Comportment, a long-neglected pioneer of animation in this country. Jenny Comportment had had a minor success with Whiskers the Cat, a series of five-minute animated cartoons that appeared on ABC television, usually just before the news. Whiskers was generally a somnolent cat who occasionally gave an annoyed hiss when disturbed. Jenny Comportment defended the lack of narrative tension and insisted that she was an adherent of the French animation verite movement. After the first season of Whiskers the Cat ended, she produced a 12-episode season of Roger the Dog, which mainly featured a mixed-breed dog waiting at the front door for the family to come home. Jenny Comportment's third effort, Goldie the Goldfish, wasn't picked up by anyone, only coming to light on a specialist YouTube channel decades later, and even there, meeting with only lukewarm reviews. The coming together of Jenny and Penny was timely, fortuitous, and produced a landmark full-length animated feature as avant-garde as Salvador Dali on acid as groundbreaking as a hundred jackhammer operator singing Tosca, as ahead of its time as a cheap watch. 
Slyman premiered at the Brighton, UK, Film Festival in 1991, where it was greeted with astonishment, cries of alarm and several arrest warrants. In a fit of outrage at the reception, Jenny Comportment took the only copy of the film and walked into the ocean with it. She was never heard of again. Tragically, Penny Mallison died in 1997 when she was distracted by a squamous skink, tripped on a dull snake, then slipped on an oozing toad only to strike her head on a brick, all while trying to save a baby grunting pigeon from falling down a gully trap. Oh, what a loss for the flora and fauna of Australia. Well, two losses. That's, that's, that's two great Australians in that, in that piece. It was a bit of a double bunger, wasn't it? It was, indeed. Very good. Well done. Well, that wraps up a jam-packed episode there, Stephen. Yep, there was, like all our episodes, I think it was it was a rich variety. Something for everyone, you'd say? Something for everyone. All we can do now is to sign off. So everybody out there, I'm Michael Pryor. I'm Stephen Higgins. And tune in to Apocryphal Australia next time. See you then. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?